You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. You're listening to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I have the privilege of interviewing John Tiltmeyer. John, thanks for being here. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. So we linked up through Mike Island, who we did an episode about his special forces camp almost being overrun in South Vietnam. Um, we should give the listeners a sense of where this episode is going to go, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you wound up in the Army? Sure. Um, in 1966, I uh, flunked out of college after two years of trying to flunk out, and I finally succeeded. And then my dad said, uh, be advised, the draft board will be here soon. And right after that letter, I read the book, The Green Berets. And I grew up in Trenton, New Jersey. I knew I was a city slicker. And I said, if I have to go to war, I need more training than just basic training and the advanced infantry training. So if I can make it, I want to enlist. That's what I did. So I enlisted. And then after basic training, we went to advanced infantry training. And during that training, a little guy comes out and says, hey, we're looking for volunteers for special forces. So I jumped up. Um, they told me they lowered the standards. And uh, <laughs> from uh, after jump school with the Fort Bragg, and uh, we were there for seven months training up. With the, for, and then in December of 67, graduated from there. We had some more training for radio teletype. Arrived in Vietnam in April of uh, 68. And then at the end of the in-country Green Beret training, a little guy comes out and says, we're looking for volunteers. My buddy Johnny McIntyre goes, well, for, for what, Sarge? He goes, can't say. Either you're in or you're not. And we volunteered. And it was for the Military Assistance Command Vietnam, which was overseeing what turned out to be the eight-year secret war where uh, Green Berets with indigenous troops ran missions across the fence into Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam. We later learned, much later learned, it had the highest casualty rate of the Vietnam War and um, and today, we still have 1,579 Americans still missing, listed as missing in action from the Vietnam War in all of Southeast Asia, which includes 50 Green Berets from the Secret War and 83-plus that we documented aviators who died supporting our teams on the ground during the eight-year Secret War, which went on from 64 to 1972. 
you use that phrase across the fence, and that's the title of your memoir, which is available on your website, and, and we'll make sure we put a link in the show notes. Thank you. When you got to Vietnam, did you have a sense that fighting was going to happen across the fence in Laos, in Cambodia, and in North Vietnam itself? We had heard scuttlebutt, but nothing like this is what it is or anything what it really is. Um, and so at that point, we knew about Roger Donlan, who was the first Medal of Honor recipient in 1964. He was a Green Beret. His A camp got overrun, and that's where he earned his Medal of Honor with his A team. And so we knew about A team duty, and I figured that's a big enough challenge for anybody. And um, at the end of the in country training, the guy comes out looking for volunteers. I go, hmm, okay. <laughs> so we volunteered. And uh, and next day, we were in Da Nang. We got their briefing. And, and normally, we, we'd been students for over years. We were sitting there pulling our pads and pens out. And the sergeant major comes out and says, put that shit away. This is a top secret confidential briefing. And in front of you is an NDA. Read it and sign it. If you don't want to sign it, you're welcome to leave. There'll be no hard feelings. So we signed it. Everybody there signed it. And then we had the briefing on the secret war about the missions across the fence, uh, how we did everything from area recon to point reconnaissance, POW snatches, wiretaps, bomb damage assessments, and point targets like blowing up enemy fuel lines, fuel dumps that the enemy had. And of course, trying to capture a POW because that's always the best source of intelligence. And we just sat there going, welcome to the secret war. You violated a couple of basic military principles at the beginning of this story already, right? Never volunteer. Yes, sir. Well, what did you do? You volunteered for the Green Berets. You get into Vietnam. That's not enough. You volunteer for this secret mission. When the sergeant major is giving you that brief, what is going through your head? There's two things. First is like WTF. <laughs> okay, welcome to the secret war. This is, we knew there's something going on. But we didn't realize it was this secret. Mm -hmm. And you signed it, ND. You couldn't talk to your mother or anybody about it for 20 years. And they said they were serious. They told us they would check our mail even to make sure we didn't cheat or talk to anybody we shouldn't talk about. And the second part was, hey, we just got done training for over a year. We are the tip of the spear. We are, in our minds, America's premier unit for guerrilla warfare and top secret missions. Hey, this is what we enlisted for. I never thought I'd be here. But now that I am, I want to do the best I can. The sergeant major finishes his brief. What happens next? From there, um, we had to sign up. Uh, you know, we signed the NDA and then they shipped us up to Da Nang because our in-country briefing was in the Trang, which was down in uh, two corps. Mm -hmm. And Vietnam had four corps, I-Corps, which is right at the DMZ, two corps, three and four down south. So from the Trang, they flew us to Da Nang. They had a, a Green Beret CIA safe house there. We stayed there overnight for a couple of nights. Then we had our briefing. And uh, you know, after we signed those NDAs, he turned around and pulled uh, a sheet off of the huge map. And there was Vietnam with all the cities, the DMZ. And then to the west was Laos with targets, target grids on it. Everything was targets. Then Cambodia at that time was Daniel Boone, codenamed Daniel Boone, and Laos was a prairie fire. And then north of the DMZ was Nickel Steel. And that was uh, the communist held North Vietnam. And those were targets. And then they briefed us further on that. Like I said, they ran through the missions. And at the time, we had six FOBs, forward operating bases in Vietnam. And then uh, myself, McIntyre, and a few other guys, we went north to FOB-1 at Fubai, which was um, 10 miles south of the city of Hue, H-U-E. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's up north. And that was our base that we would do operation from. And on a personal level, our helicopter landed. Myself, McIntyre, and John Hutchins, we got off. A recon team got on. A SOG recon team, Spike Team Idaho, got on. Two Americans, four or five indigenous troops from the recon team. They disappeared, never to be heard from again. And there was an instant opening in recon. And that was my introduction to the secret war at a first-hand level. And we were very fortunate. Robert J. Spider-Parks had been on the team, and he got promoted to, to run another team. So when Idaho disappeared, literally, you know, Glenn Lane and Robert Owen, to this day, are two of the 50 Green Berets that are still listed as missing in action. Bodies not recovered from layoffs from the secret war. And so we were able to rebuild the team, and Spider was the team leader, and then Don Wilkin was the assistant. I was a radio operator. When the recon team Idaho goes missing, you've joined this team. Did you have doubts or that hair on the back of your neck going, ooh, this might not have been such a great idea? The hair's up on my neck and it was a pucker factor. It was minus zero. I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, that's why we got paid the big bucks. This was special forces. And this is, you know, after watching the movies of World War II, the OSS troops, what they did behind enemy lines. That was our mission. We were going. To, we knew we were going behind enemy lines. We heard that there were twenty-five to thirty thousand North Vietnamese Army in Laos alone that kept supplies coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and that was our job to see what they were doing, intervene, bring tack air on enemy troop activities, supply movements south, and then the same in Cambodia to go down and see what the enemy was up to. Because our government said we we wouldn't have conventional units in Laos or Cambodia. The Congress had agreed to not have them there. And publicly, they said, we don't. But of course, they're communists. They're lying POSs. And by 68, we had twenty-five to 30,000 in Laos, fifty to 100,000 down in Cambodia. And they would come across, attack our bases, our allies, and then go back to Cambodia and lick their wounds. And we, conventional units, we couldn't send the Marines or the Army after them. So we had to go see what they were doing particularly after Tet of 68, because that was the year we had the highest casualty rate of the Vietnam War for Americans. And our job was to see what they're up to and try to give any intel, any early warning about troop movements. How long were you at your FOB before you ran your first mission? We trained up for uh, a month and a half. And then we, uh, we had a couple of in-country, we had in-country night ambushes, and then we had a couple of training missions that were east of the Ashaw Valley in the same area to some of the Force Recon. They were operating east of the Ashaw. And so we were out there for training missions. And then we, our first two missions were inserting Air Force sensors in the Ashaw Valley. And the Ashaw Valley was the, the biggest, nastiest target we had. And we had all of our targets either in or to the west of the Ashaw Valley to see what the enemy was doing there. And so we had Air Force sensors, which were had a central unit, coaxial cables that went out, and with sensors on the end. So anything that came up and down the trail, those sensors could pick it up and relay it to the Air Force Airborne Command and Control Center. We put in two of those. And all we had was enemy fire at our helicopters when we left. Nothing serious. And then we finally had a mission in uh, October the 6th, was Echo 4 target. And again, we had uh, an area recon, but they had told us about an American POW camp that might be nearby. And we were hoping to, to try to vector towards that camp to see if we could locate it. And as it turned out, um, and on the first day, so this is like we were deep into layoffs 
And that first day, we had been on the ground for two or three hours. We heard a lot of movement coming our way. And the team lined up, Lily pulled out the pins from the hand grenades, assuming it was an NVA frontal assault on our little recon team. We had three Americans and three South Vietnamese. And it turned out we were overrun by monkeys. So they put the pins back in the hand grenades. And there we would move 10 minutes and stop for 10 minutes to listen. Because when we moved, the jungle would, would quiet down. But when we stopped moving, the regular noise would come back. And so we had to listen to what was going on, get used to that jungle rhythm. And when the, if the noise came back, then after 10 minutes, we'd move on. If it didn't, there might be other people around, and we always assumed it would be the NVA or their trackers. And so that's what then we go on guard. But in this mission, we moved for the first day, went into a rest overnight slot. They had trackers that were trying to force us or try to monitor where we were going. But the next day, we moved all day. And around about 1 o'clock, we had to leave the jungle, go up a very steep goat trail. And we moved up the side of the mountain. We looked back. We saw two NVA, big NVA. They may have been Chinese. We're not sure. They're both standing there looking at us, and they're smiling with their AK-47s. And we figured that's not a good sign. Even a green, green, green beret in Laos could figure that out. So our team leader took us up a little knoll, and we, we set up a perimeter there. The NVA hit us, and it came at us for two hours before we actually had TAC air that came in. And after a while, we began to stack up the dead bodies. And the NVA would stack the bodies up, and they were trying to get the bodies high enough so they could get up and shoot down at us. And then we finally had TAC air. A1 Sky Raiders came in with napalm runs, cluster bomb unit, which we hear about today, but cluster bomb units was SOP with us in Laos. And then um, we were in contact for two more hours. At last light, a South Vietnamese Air Force, codenamed King Bees, with Captain Tin flying an old H-34 Sikorsky, came in and hovered for 10 minutes while we went through the elephant grass to get to them. We got extracted, got everybody in a helicopter, and we left at last light. And I was down to my last uh, magazine and last hand grenade when we got pulled out. So this first patrol that you've gone into Laos, you've gone across the fence into Laos, your first encounter with enemy turns out to be monkeys. Yeah, but we figured they were NVA monkeys, but they hadn't been trained how to use the AK yet. (laughs) (laughs) Did that cut some of the tension? Absolutely. I mean, we looked at each other and just were like, WTF times two. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Welcome to the jungle, baby. And from there, then, you're moving forward, you're moving up, you encounter these two soldiers staring at you. Yeah. Smirking, basically. Yes, sir. What changed in that moment for you, or did anything change? Well, um, I was at the, uh, again, we had a six-man team. Sal was our counterpart, and he was our Vietnamese team leader on the team. He was on the tail position, and I was in front of Sal, and he pointed them out to me, and I pulled out my M79. I wanted to drop a little HE on him. He said, no, no, let's go. He said, tell Wolken. Don Wolken was our team leader. So I told Don, we moved up the trail, and then went up that knoll, and we set up our perimeter, and I even tried to make uh, communications with the PRC-25, but we couldn't raise anybody. And then they hit us, and so we were in contact and kept trying to make a connection. 
uh, during those first couple hours. Then we finally made a connection. Then we had the A1 Sky Raiders, uh, F4 Phantom Jets, and then, of course, the UE gunships. We had the, um, uh, from the 176th, the uh, Muskets. They came out, and they were just superb. And uh, they brought in the close, close, uh, close air support to the best. When those first NVA rounds start coming in, right? You'd been under fire in the Asha Valley as you were extracting, right? But when those first rounds start coming in, what went through your head? Welcome to the war, baby. I mean, it was really jarring because it was just so loud. There was, there was I don't know how many. NVA soldier, because we were on a knoll, there were only so many that could come up at once. Mm-hmm. And Sal and Hep, are, Hep was our interpreter. They opened fire on them first. And they literally, when they came out, they kept blowing them back into the jungle. And that's when they began stacking up the bodies. And it was combat. And it was just like, well, this is what we trained for. Let's get the job done. And, uh, you know, and again, you have these little moments in time where we, I, we had them coming out of the jungle, we're shooting them back in, and Fook, who was our point man, opened fire. I assumed he was shooting behind me at the people that I was shooting at. Because a lot of times, you would see the weapon or the feet in the jungle, and they would open fire before they came out of the jungle. And we'd have that exchange back and forth. Well, after we got pulled out from the mission, the next day we had a debrief with the team. At the end, I asked Fook, I said, why were you shooting over my shoulder? He says, no, I wasn't shooting over your shoulder. I was shooting down the hill. There were three or four NVA coming up the hill. They were aiming their rifle at you. And so that was uh, lessons learned, you know, because you have that tunnel vision where you're shooting your weapon. And I knew my hearing was really screwed up for several days after that, but it's better than the alternative. Mm-hmm. Nothing like who wants to die with good hearing. I'd rather have bad hearing and have another day. <laughs> when the South Vietnamese helicopter is coming in, it's last light. You've been in combat now and in direct contact for hours. What was the sense among the team? What was your sense of your first day in, in operations? Yeah, this is day two. And we were, um, you know, it was just like, okay, if we don't get out of here now, we're dead. And it was a welcome sound just to hear that old Sikorsky coming in. And we were in elephant grass, and there were some smaller trees. So Captain Tin came in. He couldn't, he couldn't land. He had to hover there. And then as, as he's hovering, we were doing final gun runs with the helicopters, the gunships from the muskets. We had the judge and the executioner. They were the code names of the pilots and um, were throwing the guys into the helicopter. And at one point in between all this, I look up and the, as you know, the helicopter seat is above the passenger area and the pilot was on the right side. And there's a one door on the right side. We put in the people. I look up and Captain Tim was sitting there just cool as a, as a Rocky Mountain breeze. Okay, man. And anytime you're ready, we can go. The stewardesses will serve their beverages once we take off. That's how cool he was. <laughs> and uh, he, 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 took, uh, he took 48 rounds that night while he was hovering and when we took off. And he still brought us back. And there were no casualties in, that, in none of our team, neither he nor a co-pilot or the door gunner. 
nobody had it was a, somehow we survived all that so this is your first mission across the fence right i went through all my rounds we down to, went through 600 plus rounds um 10 to 12 rounds for the m79 the 40 millimeter uh, he high explosive grenades and of course my hand grenades 10 to 12 all done gone what was the takeaway from you from that experience that first that first mission this could be a long war <laughs> and uh it was like holy shit thank god for the king bees had it not been for the king bee it would have been i don't even want to think about the night how long was rest and refit before going back out we had a couple of weeks because uh after that mission don Wolken got promoted to cubby rider and then there was another american on the team jim davison who asked to be uh, to leave the team. He had had a tour of duty with the um, 173rd for a whole year in Vietnam. And after that mission, he came up to me and said, you know, Tilt, I can't do this. I mean, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And I said, well, thank you for being honest. And so we got him a job somewhere else on base. But he, he, was, he was a stud up there in a the mountain that night. He hung in there through the whole day with us and never had an issue. But he, you know, after a year with the 173rd, then to tell me that, that also is like, we're in a different phase of the war here. So with the departure of those two Americans, you then have to rebuild the team. Are you the senior American at this point? I was. So I became the team leader and uh, we had some discussion about it. You know, Spider Parks, he had gotten promotion to uh, a cubby rider, but he's still very close with the team. He cared about the team or, and, and everybody on it. And so Spider came to me and said, you know, you've been on a team. You've had five, six missions now. Uh, are you ready to be the one zero? And I said, well, I'd, I don't know if I want the responsibility. He said, well, I'd rather have you than have a stranger. Because two days on October 5th, we had a recon team, ST Alabama, that had a team leader not familiar with SOG, or how we operated. That team leader walked his recon team into an L-shaped ambush. And on that mission, the nine-man team went in, six came home, three KIAs. And we learned later that the NVA, that recon team, and the close air support from the uh, Air Force, Army, and Marine Corps, we had Scarface uh, was attached to us with gunships. And we inflicted 90% casualties on a 10,000-man division on one day. But because of the experience of the inexperienced guy, Spider said, look what happened there. You know the team. The team knows you. And so I became the team leader, one zero. What was that transition like as a young Special Forces NCO? It was really tough. I mean, I knew that what the responsibility was. After watching Spider and Don, and we had other, other guys in camp, you know, senior NCOs that we could always talk to. It was a great deal of responsibility, and I never felt anything like that weight before or since. I was just lucky. We had good men on the team. The South Vietnamese, Sal and Hep, had been fighting for over two years. They had been running top-secret missions with SOG for over two years. So I depended on them, and they would, in the jungle, I depended on them extensively, when it came to attack air, that was my job, getting us in, getting us out. And, of course, mission planning and things like that. When you took the team back out, 
what was the shift? What was your attitude? What were you feeling as your first mission as a team leader? It was, it was like surreal. Because on one hand, I couldn't believe that we got out alive. We had Captain Tin, not for Captain Tin, I, I don't think we would have been at, we would have survived that night. And then on the other hand, we're back at base, and now within two days, we had all those changes. And again, I had a good Vietnamese, and then we brought in uh, John Bubba Shore came on the team, and he's a quick learner. And uh, we trained him up quick, and then we had a mission by the end of the month. And we went back in November, December, we ran many missions. And uh, uh, sometimes we get shot out of targets, other times we got on the ground. And whenever we were down at the TDY to Cam- Cambodia targets, we ran out of FOB6 for about 10 to 12 days. And one of our missions there was to go find three NVA divisions that were missing in that were missing, and they couldn't find them. The CIA, the DIA, and it was the first, the third, and the seventh NVA divisions in Cambodia. So on Thanksgiving Day, our mission was to go find them. And the CO, he said, look, this is going to be a, it could be a really nasty target. Before you guys go out, we'll give you a Thanksgiving dinner. So he was a man of his word. We got to the launch site. We had a Thanksgiving dinner, packed up, got on a helicopter, went in, and we literally walked into an NVA base camp. And we later figured that one division had just left and another one was coming in. And they chased us back to the LZ. And I'll never forget seeing the NVA running at port arms towards us. And we had the uh, gun runs with the helicopters. And we had claymores. And claymores with five-second fuses. So we put them down to help slow the enemy down as they literally chased us back to the LZ. And again, we got out of there under extreme enemy fire. How did you determine it was an NVA base camp? Later, we talked to our Vietnamese based on what we saw. There were campfires. Some were still burning. And we could see other preparations like uh, hooches and things that were set up where they would stay. So the way the NVA moved, they would move units and they would stay in this base area, then move to the next base area as they infiltrated from North Vietnam through Laos into Cambodia. This was my uh, Vietnamese expertise on that. That was their impression. And uh, with the men that came at us, because they came at us from the north, which was the point element, and then from the south, which was the rear security element. And they both came back at us and chased us literally back to the LZ. You talk about the Vietnamese troops, three, two, one. You talk about your Vietnamese teammates. What was the relationship off mission between the Americans in these teams and the South Vietnamese? No, in my case, it took a little while, but I got to know them. And when I got introduced to the team by Spider Parks in May of 68, Sal, who was the Vietnamese team leader on the team, he took one look at me. He told Hep, he's too tall. His feet are too big, and he looks stupid. So I had to earn his respect and because uh, I knew about Sal. He was, anybody who knew Sal knew what a legend he was already by 68 at SOG, at FOB1, and uh, highly respected. So after that mission on October 6th and 7th, when we got pulled out, 
when we were flying back to base, I looked over at Sal. He went like, he gave me that big nod with a smile on his face, which was like, hey, you done good. That was the first time. So we got to know each other that way. The Vietnamese were just great people. I really enjoyed them. We had fun. We played poker. If we played Vietnamese poker, I lost money to the teammate. But that's okay. It was all in the family, you know. I never, our team was so close. We never had to worry about uh, friendly fire or them turning against us. And I'm alive today, first and foremost, thanks to the courage of my teammates on Idaho and then the Vietnamese Air Force and, of course, all aviation that supported Saab. Later, we had the 101st, the 1st Cav. As we said earlier, Scarface and the Marine Corps, they were attached to Saab most of the eight-year secret war. And they took casualties, but they always came. I mean, they had those early UEs that could barely get off the ground. The door gunners had to get out of the helicopters, and they pushed them to get them going. <laughs> and then once they got a little movement going, they jumped back on the helicopter. It was kind of funny to watch. The missions continue, and you talked about, you know, kind of the variety of targets. Did you wind up successfully capturing prisoners? No. In my case, no. Well, we had one guy. He ran out of Contum, out of FOB2. And during his time, his name was Dick Meadows, highly respected. He captured 13 POWs alive and brought them back. So that's the best intel in the world, but nobody got close to Dick. We had one mission, again, November of 68, where our team went in, got on the ground. We moved up the mountain, and because there was thin vegetation, I didn't do the 10-minute, 10-minute. I just pushed the team hard, just trying to do something different. Because the NVA knew what we did. We went up, came to a huge trail. We crossed it, set up an ambush. And our ambush was designed so it had a kill zone. But in the center, there was a knockout zone with C4. The C4 would knock out a person and we'd kill everybody else to the side. Set up the ambush. Sal climbed the telephone pole behind us and ran a wiretap. And so we were on the ground had the wiretap gone, had the ambush. And they didn't know we were there. The NVA walking up and down the trail with their AKs on their shoulders, talking to each other. We took some pictures. It was really cool. But we were in triple canopy jungle. When Spider came back for a communications check later, I gave him the code, which would be in one hour, I'll be back on the LZ with a POW. And Spider goes, check, do not do that. Do not move, don't breathe, don't fart. I'm at 10,000 feet. I can't see the mountain you're on, let alone find the LZ. The weather had closed in, and so our opportunity for a POW slipped away. And we were on the ground for five more days. He told us to get the high ground. And so the next day, we moved all day to get to the high ground. And, that, and, and after we moved that night, we had a perimeter set. And that's the night where the NVA crawled up and touched my boot and then crawled back down into a stream. And then we left the next morning and got to the mountaintop. And uh, that night, we heard Russians doing an aerial resupply in Laos. And it had an LZ or a drop zone that lit up at night. It was like, it was weird. It looked like Broadway in Laos with the lights. As you're sitting on this mountaintop getting ready to be extracted in the morning, and you're seeing the lights of Broadway effectively down in the jungle, what went through your head? Let's 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 shoot these bastards. So I tried. I went on the all the radio frequencies we had to try to get our airborne command and control center. 
so we could direct air assets against that Russian airplane. Of course, it's like the cops. When you need a cop, you can't find one. So that night we needed an airborne command center. We couldn't find one. But we heard the Russians talking. So we knew there were Russians on the FM radio. How long was your tour? One year. After we had the in-country training, went to FOB1, and we were there from May all the way through the end of April. I went back to 10 Special Forces Group at Fort Devens from May until October, and I just hated it there. Didn't like it. Um, I went to the Pentagon, had orders cut to go back to Vietnam, and we got back to CCN. FOB1 was closed, and we consolidated with FOB4. It became CCN. So we had CCN up north. CCC in Contum and CCS down south at Bamituit. And at CCN, I was able to get back on the old recon team with Idaho. And so I was there from October until April of 70. And then had a run-in with the commanding officer and uh, um, came home, got out after three and a half years. What had changed between your first tour and your second tour? The AO kept getting tighter. There was more NVA activity. Uh, they were more sophisticated. By 1970, the North Vietnamese Army had trained two battalions of SOG hunter killer teams. They were designed to do nothing but find our teams, kill all the Americans, and leave the indigenous personnel alive for psyops. And they, were, they improved their tactics in the field. They were more heavily armed. And of course, uh, after President Johnson had the uh, bombing pause in November or December of 68, even the aviation became more difficult. A lot of the anti-aircraft the weaponry moved further south. You know, everything from the 12.7s, 23, 33, 37 Mike Mikes had like, I think it was a 57. And they were nasty. They, they knocked our aircraft out of the sky. So our there was always a challenge just getting to the target. And after you got out, the helicopter pilots had to jute around because they had ACAC. You know, like World War II, the anti-aircraft burst you saw like in the those World War II Air, Air Force movies. And it was just like the same thing. You're flying in a helicopter. Here's ACAC trying to knock you out of the sky. And so the missions really intensified. You go back. For this second tour, you know, obviously you had some very memorable experiences the first time on Recon Team Idaho. Do you have missions that stand out from that second tour as well? Yes, there was a, one in particular where um, the weather was bad in South Vietnam. So when the weather was bad, we would fly in a black aircraft that would be taking us to Thailand. And then we would launch from Thailand east into Laos. It was a long flight. And so uh, the Air Force with HH-3s would take us. Along the way, we would refuel at a CIA refuel base and then go into the target. And as one particular target, the mission was to find NVA bridges. They were building bridges that from the air, you couldn't tell was a bridge because they had water going over it. And they wanted to take pictures of it and then to go down and blow one up preferably with an NVA truck on it. So uh, we were supposed to get inserted on the mountaintops, be in the Air Force. They got a little confused. They put us down in the valley. We got out. I split the team. We went down this valley. And it was like in the afternoon when he got inserted. It was around 2.30, 3 o'clock. And we moved down this valley for a couple of hours. And again, 
I didn't do the 10 and 10. I want to get as far away from the from that area where we've been inserted because two farmers saw us. They were literally plowing their field when the Air Force put us in there. And that night, when last light came, we they had these fingers that came down from the mountain. So we went up, got into a thicket, and Sal pushed us deep into the thicket. And that night, they came looking for us with dogs, lanterns. And we had one NVA soldier that came right up to the thicket. And had Sal not pushed us back, we, he would have seen us. or could have seen us or smelled us or heard us. But we were back enough. He left. The next morning, we spent the whole day climbing straight up a mountain face, stayed overnight. The next day, we moved out. At 2 o'clock, around 2 o'clock, we made contact, light contact with the enemy. We had come to a little plateau, and we paralleled this mountain range trying to get down to the bridge. And we came to a little plateau. We went further south, and we made enemy contact. So we came back to the plateau. We were there for several hours. We didn't have much contact, and the helicopters were going to come pull us out. When they came, we could hear them. And they said, oh, we can't. We have mechanical difficulty going back to base. And that was the beginning of a very long night. We were very lucky in that we had the Airborne Command Center brought out Spectre. And we went through four Spectre gunships in one night. Because the enemy came at us. There were hundreds of them with lanterns coming down from the mountain where we had been. They came up from the mountain that we were going to go down. And they were in the valley with trucks onloading troops and Spectre came in and just took out the troops and they kept coming at us at night. They didn't know exactly where we were. So at one point we would throw a hand grenade and then later when we got thin on hand grenades, Sal and Chow went out and got rocks and brought them back. So we would throw a rock and then you hear the NVA scamper away and then we throw a rock and they wouldn't go run away as far. Then we throw a hand grenade. So and this went on for a couple hours because we were socked in for a couple hours. And then the force specter came back and protected us. So we literally had gunfire right up to our perimeter within 25 meters. This is 1970. And Spectre at that time had four miniguns, 7.62 and two 20 Mike Mike cannons. They surrounded us and then went after the enemy, shot up the enemy troops in the valleys. And that was a long night. We got out first thing in the morning. And there were blood trails everywhere, but no dead bodies. The NVA had pulled them all back. When you got on the bird that morning, what went through your head? Thank God for the Air Force to get us out of here. And Spectre, I mean, if it hadn't been for Spectre gunships, it would have been a really long and nasty night. Well, Tilt, we, we've spent about 40 minutes talking now, and, and you've shared a few stories, more of which are available both in your book, Across the Fence, and then on your own podcast, the Sogcast, and on your website. But but as we go to close, are there any you know kind of parting pieces of wisdom from an old Mac V commando? <laughs> well, in my case, it's just like now that it's been uh, you know fifty five years since I first met the team. You know, all of my little people are gone; they've left, and I'm just so blessed to have been alive today, thanks to the courage of the team members. The aviators, the King Bee pilots particularly, because there's several times they saved our team. Uh, when you see what's going on in the world today, never have we needed a trained military more than we do today, particularly in spec ops. We, I always tell people, like we see these Special Forces originals who were the first Green Berets in 1952 that went to Bad Tolts. 
And I always tell them, we stood on their shoulders to try to take the spear forward. Today's warriors stand on Sog's shoulders as they go forward. They've done incredible work. 20-year war in Afghanistan, some of the Green Berets that have lost limbs, and they get uh, prosthetics and go back to war. My God, I just can't imagine the courage. Just proud to be American and continue to pray for our country. Tilt, I want to thank you for being on the spear today. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it, Tim. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.